what does it mean to be Protestant? And what does it mean to be an evangelical Protestant? In contradiction to the Roman Catholic Church, the Protestant Reformation was probably one of the greatest movements in the history of the church. You have famous men like Martin Luther who posted his 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Church in 1517. You also have men like John Calvin in Zwingli and the Anabaptist and others. And so we have to ask the question, what was one of the major events that happened as a result of the Protestant Reformation? And as you look back at history, the five solas of the Protestant Reformation have emerged as probably the greatest outcome of that period in history. The five solas. The word sola means alone. It comes from Latin. And so these are the the five alones or the five solas or these five statements that really have emerged from the Protestant Reformation that really define what it means to be an evangelical Protestant. The first one is Scripture alone or in Latin sola scriptura. It basically means that the Scripture alone is the inerrant rule of the church's life. Now, the Roman Catholic Church believed in the Scriptures. They believed the Bible. They would read Bible verses. It was an authority, but it was not Scripture alone. There was another authority, the authority of the church, the authority of the bishops, the authority of the pope had an equal footing with the authority of the Scriptures. And so what the Protestant reformers came along and said and said, no, Scripture alone is our sole authority. Now, if you go to, uh, to, to the Bible, you can see what the Scriptures say about itself. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verses 16 and 17, the Bible says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. All Scripture... The writing of Scripture, all Scripture, is breathed out by God. God himself has breathed out the very exact words of Scripture to human authors, and these authors have written down exactly what God wanted them to write down. Every word of the Scripture is inspired. Every word of the Scripture is without error. It is God's holy, inerrant, powerful word. And the Scriptures there says that it is profitable, it is sufficient, Scripture alone. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 21. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It wasn't as if Paul or Moses or, or Jeremiah or, or John or Matthew or one of the, the writers of Scripture just sat down and said, hey, this sounds like a good thing, all right, let me just make up something. No, it says that the Holy Spirit came and moved these men along to write down exactly what God wanted them to say. And so sola scriptura is the doctrine that emerged from the Protestant Reformation that basically says Scripture alone is the sole authority. Basically, it says that the inerrant scripture is the sole source of written divine revelation, 
which alone can bind the conscience. The Bible alone teaches all that is necessary for our salvation from sin, and it's the standard by which all Christian behavior must be measured. And so what the Protestant reformers did was they denied that any creed or council or individual could bind a Christian's conscience, but that the Holy Spirit speaks independently of or contrary to what's set forth in the Bible, or that personal experience can never be achieved other than uh, through the revelation of Scripture. And so sola scriptura was the, the belief, and it is the current belief, that the Bible alone is the sole authority. It stands alone. There, there's no other book. There's no other source. There's no other authority outside of the Scriptures alone. And this sets forth the foundation for the other solas that come along because the other solas emerge from this, this, this um, acute understanding of the centrality of the Scriptures. Now, the second sola that emerged from the Protestant Reformation is Christ alone, or solus Christus. The idea that Jesus Christ alone is the only way of salvation. Now, in John 14, chapter 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Notice that Jesus does not say, I am a way, I am a good way, I'm one of many ways. No, he's very emphatic and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. And so what solus Christus, or Christ alone, means is that Jesus is the only way of salvation. There is salvation in no other name. As a matter of fact, if you look at Acts chapter 4, when the early apostles were preaching those messages. And Peter stands up before the, the congregation in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. He says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's no other name. There's salvation in no other name except for the name of Jesus Christ. Solus Christus. And so our evangelical faith has become secularized at this point. There's a lot of things that are going on in our culture. There's, there's a, a loss of absolute values. There's been a permissive individualism. There's not been a holiness or, or this idea of repentance that's going on. And so Christ and his cross have moved from the very center of our vision as evangelical Christians in our world today. And so what the, the Protestant evangelical sola, Christ alone, affirms is that salvation is accomplished by the mediatorial work of the historical Christ alone. His sinless life and substitutionary atonement alone are sufficient for our justification and reconciliation to the Father. The Protestant reformers denied that the gospel is preached if Christ's substitutionary work is not declared and faith in Christ in his work is not solicited. Now, in, in, in contradiction to the Roman Catholic Church, there, there wasn't a lot of, of differing here. The, the Roman Catholics did believe that Jesus was the only way of salvation. They did believe in his cross and his atonement. And so the, the Protestant reformers in the Roman Catholic Church, they agreed at this point that, that salvation is through Jesus Christ. But where they differed is when we look at the next two solas. These are the key solas that really distinguish the, the Protestant Reformation, the Protestant Church, is the evangelical protestants from the roman catholic church 
Because both of them believe in Christ alone. They both believe that Jesus is the only way of salvation. But the, the third sola, grace alone. Sola gratia, grace alone. Now, the Roman Catholics did believe in grace. You talk to a Roman Catholic today, you talk to a bishop or, or even the pope, they maintain that there is grace. But the way they view grace is a lot different than the way that evangelical Protestants view grace. They don't see grace alone. They look at a work that has to be done in order to uh, help that grace. That's why they've uh, developed the sacramental system. Uh, they, 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 they believe in something called infused grace. For example, I like to liken it to a, um, a gas tank. So, for example, when you are born as a baby, uh, you have original sin. And so what happens in the Roman Catholic view is you're baptized as a baby. And the baptism as a baby basically helps cover your sin for a while. And so at that point, you're infused with grace and your gas tank, as it were, is full. Your tank's on full. But as you continue to live your life and you sin more and more, your gas tank keeps losing the grace and it starts to move down to empty. And if you're to die with your gas tank on empty, you would go to purgatory. And so you need some method or some way to keep the gas tank full. And that's where the sacraments come in. And so you go and you partake in the sacraments, you partake in the Eucharist, you do these sacraments as a way to get the gas tank back up to full. And the more you sin, the more the gas tank goes down. And then, and then if for some reason you die without having last rites or you die with your gas tank empty, you end up going to purgatory. You end up outside of God's grace. And so instead of salvation by grace alone, the grace that comes through Christ alone, there's the, the help that has to come alongside that grace in the sacraments. And that's where the Roman Catholic view is a lot different than the Protestant view. We get this idea of grace alone really from, from Paul's writings, all of Paul's writings, but especially in Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, we get encapsulated this idea of the sinful nature of man and then the glorious grace of God. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom, whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul paints a very... Uh, graphic picture here of the of the state of humans without christ he says you were dead paul lists five descriptions here of a lost person without jesus christ a person that is not saved a person that's not a christian the first thing he says here is that that they were once dead dead spiritually dead in their trespasses they're they're spiritually dead and then secondly he says you followed the course of this world you're a product of this world system you follow the ways of this evil wicked world and thirdly he says you follow the prince of the power of the air talking about satan you're in bondage to satan you're enslaved to satan you follow satan if you don't have christ in your life and thirdly he says you're you're living out the passions of your flesh you're enslaved to your flesh your sin nature takes over your life to where you don't make the right choices and you you operate out of your flesh and then fifthly he says you're a child of wrath like the rest of mankind that all mankind all humans are under god's wrath now that is a that is a dangerously 
powerful statement about the depravity of mankind, how we are helpless, we are hopeless, we are spiritually dead. We need a Savior. And we can't produce this aliveness. We can't produce this salvation. We can't remedy this in ourselves. We can't remedy this by doing any type of sacrament or doing anything. We are spiritually dead, and that's where grace comes in. Notice what Paul says next in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace You've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. It's all of grace. God has to come in his sovereign grace and do a work in our hearts to make us spiritually alive. He's got to raise us to new life. And we can't produce this in and of ourselves. We can't cooperate with this grace in a sense that we can, as the Roman Catholic view would say, uh, participate in the sacraments as, as some way to infuse grace in us. God has to come to us and grant us this saving grace. And so a lot of times... We put unwarranted confidence in human ability to somehow produce this grace. And so what the Protestant reformers affirmed was that in salvation, we're rescued from God's wrath by His grace alone. It's the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit that brings us to Christ by releasing us from our bondage to sin and raising us from spiritual death to spiritual life. And so they would deny that salvation is in any sense a human work. Human methods, techniques, or strategies by themselves cannot accomplish this transformation. Faith is not produced by our unregenerate human nature. So grace alone is this idea that God alone must come to a dead sinner's heart who's hopeless, who's helpless, And he must regenerate or cause the new birth to come into that sinner to enable them to have spiritual life. And once that happens, they repent and they believe in Jesus alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. There's there's no other action that's required except for simple faith alone. And that's the fourth one, faith alone or sola fide. Now, justification is, by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, is the foundational tenet of the Protestant Reformation. This is the article, as Martin Luther said, by which the church stands or falls. Justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, faith alone. Now, the Roman Catholics would believe you have to have faith. You have to have faith in Christ. Uh, you would sit down with the Roman Catholic today or you talk to a priest or you even would go back to those days in the 15, 1600s. Faith was a necessity. You had to believe in Jesus. But it was not faith alone. See, the alones are the key things to add on these, on these, on these phrases. Faith alone, grace alone, scripture alone. It wasn't faith alone because, again, they added the sacramental system in there as a way to give you 
help in your faith. It wasn't just mere believing in Jesus. Now, here's where justification comes into play. Justification, the way that Martin Luther understood it, the way that John Calvin understood it, the way other Protestant reformers understood it, stood in direct contradiction to the way the Roman Catholic Church understood it. You see, in the biblical view of justification by faith, our sins are imputed or reckoned to Christ, and His righteousness is imputed or reckoned or accounted to us. I want you to think about it this way. Uh, Think about a ledger sheet or accounting term, a banking term. Um, In your bank account, or your life is a bank account, in your life, there's a negative gazillion balance because of all the sin that you've ever committed in your life. And there's no way that you can get yourself out of this sin debt. No matter how hard you try, you are in a negative balance. And so what happens is when you believe in Jesus through faith in Christ, all of your sin, every sin that was in your account, in your bank account, that sin is withdrawn from your bank account and it's transferred over to Jesus' account, deposited in his account. And so Jesus bears your sins in his body on the cross and now your sins have been paid for past, present, and future by faith. And so your negative balance has been taken out of your account by faith in Christ, and it's been taken to Christ's account. Now, because your sin's been taken out, that leaves you at a zero balance. Now, a zero balance just means that you're neutral, that you're back to zero. You need to have a positive balance in order to get into heaven. You need a positive righteousness. Now, the the issue is we cannot produce this positive righteousness. We can't do anything in and of ourselves to do this, and so we need the righteousness of Christ to be credited to us, to be deposited to us, to be accounted to us, and that's what also happens in justification. When we believe in Jesus by faith alone, His perfect righteousness, His perfect record, His perfect standing is then credited to our account. And so we now have the righteousness of Christ. Now, it doesn't mean that we no longer have sin in our lives. It just means that when God the Father looks down upon our lives, he can pronounce us not guilty once and for all because of the righteousness of Christ in our place. And so the moment that we have faith in Jesus, our sins are credited to Jesus and his righteousness is credited to us. And that's called the great exchange, as Martin Luther would call it, the great exchange. It's a one-time, unrepeatable event that God does in the life of a person who has faith alone in Jesus Christ. Now, the Roman Catholic Church looked at that view and said, that's a legal fiction. That can't happen. You can't have a person who's simultaneously righteous, yet at the same time is sinning. It doesn't make sense. They had a different view. They had this idea of infused righteousness. The same thing with infused grace. This idea that through the sacraments, you could be infused from time to time righteousness by keeping the sacraments. But the idea that you could be permanently in God's good standing by faith alone in Jesus Christ was something that they could not accept. So that's the key distinction between the evangelical Protestant view of faith alone and the Roman Catholic view of faith plus the sacramental system, faith plus a work. And so faith alone is is just a huge doctrine that I believe is even under attack today, but it's one of the foundational views, one of the foundational doctrines of the church today, sola fide. And so what the Protestant reformers affirmed was that justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. In justification, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us as the only possible satisfaction of God's perfect 
justice. They also denied this. They denied that justification rests on any merit to be found in us or upon the grounds of an infusion of Christ's righteousness in us or that an institution claiming to be a church that denies or condemns sola fide can be recognized as a legitimate church. Now that's a pretty strong statement from the early reformers because what they would say then is that according to the scriptural teaching, they would deny that the Roman Catholic Church is a true church because it denies sola fide. Now when you go to Romans, you find the doctrine of sola fide, of faith alone. Especially in Romans chapter 3 and 4. In Romans chapter 3, Paul says this in verses 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe, for there's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, there's the key word there, by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. It's a free gift of God's grace. The moment that we believe in Jesus, we are justified. Uh, Back up in Romans chapter 4, verse 4, Paul says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as is due. And to the one who does not work, but trust him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. What Paul is saying there is that faith alone means simply trusting in, believing in Jesus Christ alone. That is sufficient enough to save a sinner from their sins and grant them eternal life. It's not by works. It's not by doing anything. It's not faith plus the sacraments or faith plus a work or faith plus anything. And even the faith that we have to believe, the Protestant reformers would say, even that faith that we have to believe is not a work in and of itself because it's a gift of God that he's given us to be able to do it. So the faith that we even believe in Jesus is not a work. It's a trusting. It's a gift of God that he's given to us in the gospel. So we have Scripture alone. The Bible is the sole, the only rule of faith, the only inerrant source of authority for Christians in the church. Christ alone, Jesus is the only way of salvation. Grace alone, it's grace that comes to us through the sovereign power of God to rescue us from our bondage to sin and liberate us. And it doesn't have anything added to it. It's simply grace alone and faith alone. It's not faith plus works, it's faith alone. And the final sola, the last of the solas, is called God's glory alone. Soli Deo Gloria, to God's glory alone. Now we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, these words of Paul again. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Everything centers on the glory of God and His majesty and His power and His dominion. The psalmist in Psalm 115 verse 1 says this, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Your name give glory for the sake of Your steadfast love and Your faithfulness. God's glory alone. Oftentimes, what happens in the current church culture today 
is that God's glory gets, ex- gets eclipsed by a man-centered view of reality. We tailor everything towards a man or a human-centered view of reality. What helps my needs? It's all about me. It's all about my agenda and my plan and my glory and my ambition. And, and let's sing songs about me and let's make it all about me. And the Protestant reformers would say, that's, that's so wrong. It's all about God and His glory. God does not exist primarily for us. We exist primarily for God. And it's all about God's glory. And so here's what the Protestant reformers would affirm. They would say that because salvation is the gift of God and has been accomplished by God, it is for God's glory, and we must glorify Him always. We must live our entire lives before the face of God, under the authority of God, and for His glory alone. And they would say that we deny that we can properly glorify God if, we, if our worship is confused with entertainment if we neglect either law or gospel in our preaching, or if self-improvement, self-esteem, or self-fulfillment are allowed to become alternatives to the gospel. It's very interesting when you think about the history of the church, because this was a product of the Protestant Reformation, but in the early to mid-90s, there was... um, some, some dialogue between the Roman Catholics and between evangelical Protestants. And a lot of leaders came together and said, well, can't we just all get along? Uh, evangelicals and Catholics together. I mean, we basically believe the same thing. And so in 1996, a group of evangelical leaders came together and said, no, we really can't coexist because throughout history, especially in the dawn of the, of the Protestant Reformation, we have diametrically opposed views to these five solas. And so uh, the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals drafted what's called the Cambridge Declaration in April of 1996. And they did this as a way to reemphasize those five solas of the Protestant Reformation that were articulated in the 15 and 1600s to a modern audience today because there's always that tension of the Roman Catholic Church, the Evangelical Protestant Church, can they coexist? Do they basically believe the same thing? And historically, if you look at the Council of Trent, if you look at Vatican I and Vatican II, if you look at the writings of the Roman Catholic Church, their official documents, and you look at the history of Evangelical Protestantism, you have to say from a historical perspective, they are not in agreement on these major tenets. They just aren't. Historically, they are not. And so today when you, when you hear people say, well, they basically believe the same things, they're either historically not informed or they, or they just don't want to admit that there are those great divides. Now, it's interesting that, that there are these divides. And so in today's culture um, where the lines are being blurred, evangelical Protestants are having to stand up for the truth of what they believe the scriptures teach about these five views in contradistinction to what the Pope and the bishops and the Roman Catholic Church would say. And so as we think about these five solas of the Protestant Reformation, Scripture alone, where is your belief? Is your belief in the Bible alone as the sole authority in your life? Or is it in some other source? Is it in yourself? Or is it in another sacred writing out there that's not inspired or or a church council? Christ alone. Is Jesus Christ alone your Savior? Is He the only way of salvation? Have you placed your trust in Him alone? Or do you just view Him as one of many paths that get to God? 
Grace alone. Do you believe that you are a sinner who's dead in your sins and you are in bondage to slavery to sin, that you can't get yourself out of this plight, that you need a desperate work of grace in your life to to bring you from spiritual death to spiritual life? Do you believe in grace alone, that you cannot boast that it's all of grace of God reaching down and saving you? And then faith alone. Have you placed your faith alone in Jesus Christ? Are you trusting in his finished work on the cross and his death, burial, and resurrection? Or are you personally putting faith in this? This one true God whose son is named Jesus Christ. And then God's glory alone. Are you living your life for God's glory alone? Are you living under his authority? Are you living to please him? Are you living to seek him? Are you living to, to um, fall under his agenda and his ways and his plans? Or are you trying to promote your ways and your plans and your agenda? The Protestant Reformation was a major, major event in church history that really many evangelical Protestants today may not quite understand the trajectory that we've landed on as a result of these five solas. But I think if there's one thing that that we can unite around as Protestant evangelicals, regardless of the stripe, regardless of whether you're Baptist or Nazarene or Berean or Presbyterian or Lutheran or Assembly of God or Charismatic or Calvary Chapel or, or whatever stripe or denomination or labels on your church sign, as Protestant evangelicals, I pray that we could unite around these five solas. Scripture alone, Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, to God's glory alone. As we think about the Protestant Reformation and all the things that came out of that, uh, the, the five solas are very, very key, but there's another five that have been very, very controversial, and those are the five points of Calvinism. Now, you need to have a little bit of history to understand the five points of Calvinism. In 1610, just one year after the death of Jacob Arminianus, who was a seminary professor in Holland, um, his followers drew up the five articles of faith based upon the teachings of Arminianus. Arminius, excuse me. And these were called Ar- the Arminians, the ones that followed Jacob Arminius. And they presented the five points of Arminianism to the state of Holland, the the state church, in the form of the remonstrance, which means protests. And so really, in history, the five points of Arminianism came first because the, the Holland church had developed the Belgic Confession of Faith, the Heidelberg Catechism, and and these catechisms, these confessions of faith, really express the doctrinal views of God's sovereignty that came from John Calvin and others. And so the Arminians, the remonstrants, if you will, objected to the doctrines of both the Heidelberg Confession and the, I mean, the Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism. And so what they did was they presented these two um, the authorities to say these are our protests. These are our we're the remonstrance. We we don't like the theology that you've come out with. We're going to protest, and so thus the five points of Arminianism. Well, in, in 1618 in Dort, which is a an area of Holland, a national synod or a, a convocation or a, a church council, if you will, met called the Synod of Dort in 1618. 
And it met to examine the views of the Arminians, the five points of Arminians, to look at them remonstrance, to, to expose those to the scriptures and, and to really come together and, and say, how can we view these? How do we deal with these? And so um, there were 84 Dutch delegates, 27 delegates from Germany and Switzerland and England and Scotland. And so they all came together from Europe at that time in 1618, and 154 sessions were held during seven months, uh, the Synod of Dort, to consider these matters. And the last one was on May 9th of 1619. And so the Synod of Dort basically responded with their five answers to the five points of Arminianism. And so really the five points of Calvinism really wasn't named after Calvin per se. It was really the Synod of Dort that was responding to Arminians and their views that we get these five doctrines of grace or these five points of Calvinism. And so Calvin has kind of been nicknamed Calvinism, although, yes, Calvin did um, espouse many of the views, but formalized view of the five points of Calvinism really came from the Synod of Dort. And so what I want to do is I want to lay side by side for you the five points of Arminianism and the five points of Calvinism. And I'm going to give some biblical things here. And obviously, I need to lay my cards on the table as you're listening to this. You need to understand something. I don't want to hide anything. Um, I am a, a Calvinist. And so my viewpoint comes from the Synod of Dort. My viewpoint comes through an understanding of Scripture to be Calvinistic. And so that's going to color the way that I present this. Now, in reading some of your responses in class and in, and in looking at some of the discussions, I understand that many are from a different background, more Armenian and more Wesleyan. Again, you're not going to get counted off in this class if we have differences of opinion. Those are doctrinal distinctions. Remember, dogma are those absolute essentials that we must believe in order to be a Christian. Things like the Trinity, the virgin birth, the sinless nature of Christ, uh, the resurrection, the atonement. Jesus is the only way of salvation. Uh, salvation by grace alone through faith alone. The second coming of Christ. The authority of the Bible. Uh, the reality of heaven and hell. Those types of things are the dogma. The absolute essentials that we must believe. Then we move into doctrine. Those are uh, beliefs that we can have strong opinions about. They're not crucial in defining if we're going to heaven or not, but this is what makes distinctions between denominations and different groups, and we can have very strong opinions on those. And so when we talk about Arminianism and Calvinism, we're talking about doctrines, things that we can agree to disagree upon, and we may have strong views upon these, but as I lay out this, this session here, I want to lay my cards on the table and tell you that I'm coming from a Calvinist perspective, but I'm going to try to be fair to show you both points just to articulate what the two points are and to kind of give you historical framework for that. The, the nickname Tulip has actually been used um, in recent history, probably about the last 100, 115 years or so, to kind of give an acrostic for uh, the five points of Calvinism. Uh, tulip, T, total depravity. U, unconditional election. L, limited atonement. I, irresistible grace, and P, perseverance of the saints. I personally do not like the tulip acrostic because I think the wording that the tulip acrostic uses is confusing and it's open to a lot of mischaracterizations. I would prefer to just let the doctrine stand for themselves based upon the scripture. But let's look here with that tulip acrostic, if you will. Let's look at the five points of Arminianism next to the five points of Calvinism. And let's start with, with T. 
uh, the idea of uh, how sinful really is human, are, are human beings. So let's look first at the, five, at the first point of Arminianism. This is the first point that the remonstrance, um, the, the, the followers of, of James Arminianus uh, protested against the Church of Holland. And so here's their, their first point. And, I, and I'm, I'm synthesizing this really from a book called The Five Points of Calvinism, defined, defended, and documented. Um, it gives a really good chart in there of both views side by side. So I'll be reading from this. Um, they've kind of updated the language to, so that you're not having to have it translated from the Dutch as it was back in the day. So uh, here's the first point of Arminianism. Uh, free will or human ability. Although human nature was seriously affected by the fall, Man has not been left in a state of total spiritual helplessness. God graciously enables every sinner to repent and believe, but he does so in such a manner as to not interfere with man's freedom. Each sinner possesses a free will, and his eternal destiny depends on how he uses it. Man's freedom consists of his ability to choose good over evil in spiritual matters. His will is not enslaved to his sinful nature. The sinner has the power either to cooperate with God's spirit and be regenerated or to resist God's spirit or God's grace and perish. The lost sinner needs the spirit's assistance, but he does not have to be regenerated by the spirit before he can believe. For faith is man's act and precedes the new birth. Faith is the sinner's gift to God. It is man's contribution to salvation. Okay, the first point of Arminianism very heavily focuses on the free will of human beings. That, that yes, we're affected by the fall, by Adam's fall into sin. And that's affected us in the sense that we are spiritually weak, we are spiritually dependent upon God, but yet we're not totally dead. We're not dead in our sins to where we need a sovereign regeneration to come and take us out of that spiritual state of deadness. And so the Arminian view would say that God values the human's free will very highly and allows the sinner to cooperate with enabling grace or prevenient grace, if you will. We'll talk about that in just a few moments. So man has free will. He is sinful, but yet he can choose to resist or accept God's gift of faith. He's not spiritually dead. He or she is spiritually sick. Now, the five points of Calvinism. Let's look at the counterpoint that the Synod of Dort um, enunciated in contradiction to the, the five points of, of Arminianism. Here's the first point, uh, total depravity or total inability. Uh, because of the fall, man is unable of himself to savingly believe the gospel. The sinner is dead, blind, and deaf to the things of God. His heart is deceitful and desperately corrupt. His will is not free. It is in bondage to his evil nature. Therefore, he will not, indeed, he cannot choose good over evil in a spiritual realm. Consequently, it takes much more than the Spirit's assistance to bring a sinner to Christ. It takes regeneration, by which the Spirit makes the sinner alive and gives him a new nature, Faith is not something man contributes to salvation, but is itself as a part of God's gift of salvation. It is God's gift to the sinner, not the sinner's gift to God. Okay, the, the key distinction there is how sinful is mankind truly? In the Arminian scheme, mankind is sinful but not dead. In the Calvinist or the Reformed scheme, mankind is dead. 
He's spiritually here. She is spiritually dead and needs to be regenerated. He cannot, his, his will is enslaved. Uh, yes, there is freedom in the sense that mankind chooses what to do. They, they choose based upon their nature. So for example, um, a Cal- as a Calvinist, I would not say that we don't have free will. I would define it differently. I'd say we have the freedom to choose based upon our nature. So, for example, if I go to Cold Stone um, ice cream and I, I look at all the flavors of ice cream, I may want to get um, uh, French vanilla with M&Ms and hot fudge because my nature says I really want to have that, and so I choose based upon my nature. Or I wake up and say I want to wear blue jeans instead of khakis. I choose based upon our nature. So we choose all day long based upon our nature. What the Calvinist says is when it comes to choosing God, a lost person cannot choose God because he or she's nature is enslaved to sin. We're in bondage to sin, and therefore, because we're in bondage to sin, we cannot choose. God has to do something in us and for us to cause us to have the desire to choose because we are dead. And we know that Jesus talks about this inability. In John six forty four. no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me unless God does something, unless the Father draws him. Now, we'll talk about this in a few moments. The Arminian would say that God tries to draw and woos and works and moves, but ultimately the final decision is up to the sinner whether he or she is going to trust Christ. The Calvinist says that a sinner cannot trust Christ because they are dead and God has to draw them all the way to salvation by granting them saving faith. The Bible does speak about depravity. Um, John 3.19, this is the judgment. Jesus says, The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That scripture says, Paul says, we are dead, not that we're sick, but that we are spiritually dead and we're under God's wrath. And then Romans 3 Uh, 10 says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, no, not even one. There's there's no one who seeks after God, Paul says. So the issue is, are we totally sinful? Both Arminians and Calvinists would say, yes, we are sinful. But it comes to another nuance. Do we lack the ability in and of ourselves to come to Christ in faith? The Arminian would say, yes, we have that ability. God values our free will, and yes, we were affected by the fall of Adam and Eve, but yet we still have the ability. We're sinful, but we still have the ability to make that choice. A Calvinist would say, no, we do not have that ability because we are spiritually dead, because we're enslaved, because we don't seek God, we don't have that ability. We're spiritually dead, and so God has to give us the ability. And then your next question would be, well, does God give everybody that ability? And that's where we come to the second point of the doctrine of Calvinism versus Arminianism. It's the you, unconditional election versus conditional election. 
Now let's talk about the Arminian one first. The Arminian view says there's a conditional election. So let me, let me explain it. God's choice of certain individuals for salvation before the foundation of the world was based upon his foreseeing that they would respond to his call. He selected only those whom he knew would of themselves freely believe the gospel. Election, therefore, was determined by or conditioned upon what man would do. The faith which God foresaw and upon which he based his choice was not given to the sinner by God, i.e., it was not created by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, but resulted solely from man's will. It was left entirely up to man to determine who would believe and therefore who would be elected for salvation. God chose those whom he knew would, of their own free will, choose Christ. Thus, the sinner's choice of Christ, not God's choice of the sinner, is the ultimate cause of salvation. This is called the conditional view of election or the foreknowledge view. In this view, in the Arminian view, God looks down, and let me just stop right here, in both views, because Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that we were chosen before the foundation of the world, both views look at this as happening before time before the foundation of the world, when God made his choice. It's just how it, it operates. In the Arminian view, God looks down through the corridors of time. He foresees actions that are completed by people in the future, and based upon what God sees, he ratifies or he puts a stamp of approval or he elects based upon what he sees. So let me give you an example. Let's say in 1985, uh, Sally is at youth camp. And Sally is under the preaching of the gospel. She hears about Jesus. And at that moment, there's an altar call where the evangelist calls for those that want to come forward and ask Jesus into their heart and to believe in Jesus. And Sally feels conviction of the Holy Spirit. She knows she's a sinner. She goes down front and she trusts Jesus Christ for salvation. She gets saved. Now, in the Arminian view, God in eternity past looked forward to that point in time in 1985, and God saw what Sally was going to do. And so Sally, based upon her own free will, chose Jesus. And because God saw Sally choosing Jesus, God then elected or predestined Sally to salvation because of what he saw. So ultimately, in the Arminian view, God's choice is based upon what he sees sinners doing with their free will. Now, the other view, the, the, the Calvinistic view, is called unconditional election. The reason the Arminian view is called conditional election is because there's conditions placed upon what God has to do before he elects. The conditions are God has to see that faith. God has to see that repentance. And once those conditions are met, once God sees a person trusting and the conditions are met, then God elects based upon what he sees. There are, it's conditional election. The Calvinistic view says, no, it's unconditional election. There are no conditions that have to be met by the sinner in order for God to elect them. So let's look at unconditional election. God's choice of certain individuals for salvation before the foundation of the world rested solely in his own sovereign will. His choice of particular sinners was not based on any foreseen response or obedience on their part, such as faith or repentance. On the contrary, God gives faith and repentance to each individual whom he selected. These acts are the result, not the cause, of God's choice. Election, therefore, was not determined by or conditioned upon any virtuous quality or act foreseen in man. Those whom God sovereignly elected, he brings through the power of the Spirit to a willing acceptance of Christ. Thus, God's choice of the sinner, not the sinner's choice of Christ, is the ultimate cause of salvation. In the Calvinist view, 
God is the one that makes the choice. Now, at this point, you may be saying, well, that, that's not fair. And why would God choose just a small number? I don't know if you've ever heard it. God just chooses a small number of people to be saved. Let me address both those issues. Number one, nowhere in the Bible are we ever told that God chooses a very small number. As a matter of fact, if you go to Revelation, it says that there were um, those before the throne worshiping Jesus that no man could count. They were more numerous than the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore. So we know from Revelation and from other texts in the Bible that, that those who are going to be in heaven is saved is not a small number, but a large number that no man can count. Now, secondly, the fairness issue. Here's the way the Calvinists would answer this question. Every single human being is dead and deserves hell and wrath. When Adam and Eve sinned and disobeyed God, at that moment, God could have stopped the whole thing and said, we're done. You guys disobeyed me. I'm going to send you to hell forever. We are done. But no, he allowed humans to live, and every single human that's lived has inherited that sin from Adam. And so therefore, every single person is guilty before God. Every single person deserves hell. Every single person is an object of God's wrath. And so for God to choose some and give his grace to some and to others leave in that state of sin shows that he's not unfair, he's not unjust, he's just showing grace. Because it's not unjust. Because unjust, injustice would mean that God gives you something you don't deserve. And the Calvinists would say everybody deserves hell. And so God's not being unjust by allowing you to go there. That's what you deserve. God is showing mercy by saving you out of that and the calvinist would say god doesn't save everybody he saves some and the reason that god saves some or chooses some is not because there was anything worthy in that person that moved god to save them it was simply god's sovereign pleasure to do so god didn't look down and see anything in that person that would move him to 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 to, to elect them because a person who is spiritually dead cannot choose Christ. And so God had to do something first in that person. Now, the cause for election doesn't mean that you can boast or that you're, uh, you were better or somehow more spiritual. It simply means that God, for reasons we don't know, chose some and others he left to themselves. John, well, let's look at um, Ephesians chapter 1, 4 through 5. It says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And then down in verse 11, in him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things out according to the counsel of his will. Acts thirteen forty-eight. and when the Gentiles heard this, They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now, that's an interesting verse. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. In that text, what comes first? The believing or the being appointed to eternal life? Why did they believe? Does the text say they believed because they used their free will to believe? Or does the Bible say they believed because they were appointed to believe? If you just look at the clear reading of the text, it says they believed because they were appointed to believe. That's the reason they became Christians is because they were predestined to be Christians. Some other passages, 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 through 5. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Now, oftentimes people say, well, I don't believe in predestination. 
I just don't believe in it. And what I usually answer that person is, you can't say that exactly. You can't say, I don't believe in predestination, because the Bible uses that terminology. The Bible uses the word predestination, predestined, chosen. So what you have to say is you have to nuance your, your, your statement. I don't believe a certain view of predestination, because both the Arminian and the Calvinist have a view of predestination. They both believe in predestination. It's just, how does God do it? In the Armenian scheme, God does it by looking down through the corridors of time and foreseeing who will believe, and thus, based upon what he sees, he chooses. In the Calvinistic view, God chooses simply based upon his sole pleasure and grace many people to be saved who otherwise would not be saved because they deserve hell. So either way, both views have this idea of election. Other people might say, well, um, if it's already determined by God who's elect, then why should we pray for lost people? Why should we do evangelism? Why should we send missionaries out? If it's, if it's all worked out, then why should we even do any of that type of stuff? And I want to remind you, there's not one verse of Scripture that tells us that just because God has elected those to salvation means that we should never fulfill the Great Commission. We're told to preach the gospel to all creation. We're told to evangelize the lost. We're told to share the gospel with, every, with everybody. We, we can't make a determination of, of, who's, of who's a candidate and who's not or who looks like they're elect and who's not. The Bible doesn't give it that, that permission. The Bible says be obedient in sharing the gospel. And God's means of calling out his saved people is through the call of the gospel. Okay, let's move on to the L, which is probably the most controversial of all of the five points of Calvinism. It's called limited atonement. I don't like that term because it makes it sound like there's some type of limitation in Christ's death. Um, both views, as we see, limit, limit it. So the, the Arminian limits it in its um, effectiveness. The Calvinist limits it in its scope. But let's just look at um, limited atonement. Let's look at the Arminian view of the atonement first. Uh, here's what the Arminians said. Christ's redeeming work made it possible for everyone to be saved, but did not actually secure the salvation of anyone. Although Christ died for all men and for every man, only those who believe in him are saved. His death enabled God to pardon sinners on the condition that they believe, but it did not actually put away anyone's sin. Christ's redemption becomes effective only if man chooses to accept it. Now, the Arminian believes that Jesus Christ died on the cross and that once you believe in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. That Jesus died for everyone. Jesus made salvation possible for everyone. Now, if Jesus' salvation is possible for everyone, there is a hypothetical situation that could happen. Hypothetically, in the Arminian scheme, Jesus Christ could have died and nobody have accepted him as Savior. Because if everybody used their free will, then there could be the possibility that Jesus died and nobody would come, and that could be a possibility. Now, we know in experience and from Scripture that that's not true, that people do trust Christ, but if he just made salvation a possibility, then really what the Arminian is saying is that Jesus did not, in fact, die specifically as a substitutionary atonement in the place of sinners. Your salvation, your forgiveness only becomes activated when you trust Christ for salvation. So the moment you trust Christ for salvation, that's when your forgiveness is activated. That's when your, your forgiveness goes into effect. Now let's look at the, the Calvinistic view of this. A Christ's redeeming work was intended to save the elect only and, did, and actually secured salvation for them. His death 
was a substitutionary endurance of the penalty of sin in the place of certain specified sinners. In addition to putting away the sins of his people, Christ's redemption secured everything necessary for their salvation, including faith, which unites them to him. The gift of faith is infallibly applied by the Spirit to all for whom Christ died, thereby guaranteeing their salvation. Now, the difference in view is while the Arminian says Christ made salvation possible, the Calvinist would say, no, it's a definite atonement. Jesus Christ died specifically and purposely as a substitute only for those whom God chose before the foundation of the world. And because Christ specifically died for them, he paid literally for their sins on the cross. Not a potentiality that, that once they trusted him, their sins would be forgiven, but he actually paid for their sins in his body on the cross. And he also paid for the faith to be able to believe in Jesus. So the, even the gift of faith, the, the faith that we have to believe in Christ, that in itself was purchased on the cross through Christ's atonement. Now, this can be a very... Um, controversial teaching because when you hear a Calvinist say Jesus Christ only died for the elect, that sounds a little narrow-minded and it sounds like, well, wait a minute, you're, you're limiting the effect, or you're limiting the scope of the atonement. And in a way, the Calvinist is limiting the scope. The, the Calvinist is saying, no, Jesus Christ only died for those he intended to die for and actually died for them. So it's not for everybody. But the Arminian limits the effectiveness because the Arminian says Jesus Christ died, but they're limiting what he did. He only did it as a possibility. He only did it as as making salvation possible, but not actually securing the salvation of anyone until that person actually makes the choice to believe in Jesus. And so there's a huge divide there on that issue of limited atonement. Let's move to to the, uh, the, the I, irresistible grace which is oftentimes, sometimes misunderstood. Uh, When you hear the word irresistible grace, it almost makes it sound like, I've heard people say, well, that makes it sound like God brings a sinner kicking and screaming against his will into heaven, and they don't, whether they like it or not. That is not the doctrine of irresistible grace. That's not what a Calvinist means by that. Basically, what a Calvinist means is that at the moment that God decides to make you spiritually alive, he sovereignly does that, and he takes you out of your deadness and gives you the willingness to come to Christ. And so you freely come to Christ. You freely believe in Christ because your soul has been liberated from its bondage. So let's first of all look at the Arminian view of of irresistible or resistible grace. The Spirit calls inwardly all those who are called outwardly by the gospel invitation. He does all that he can to bring every sinner to salvation. But inasmuch as man is free, he can successfully resist the Spirit's call. The Spirit cannot regenerate the sinner until he believes. Faith, which is man's contribution, precedes or goes before and makes possible the new birth. Thus, man's free will limits the Spirit in the application of Christ's saving work. The Holy Spirit can only draw to Christ those who allow Him to have His way with them. Until the sinner responds, the Spirit cannot give life. God's grace, therefore, is not invincible. It can be and often is resisted and thwarted by man. What they're saying here is that because you have free will, 
you can successfully resist or cooperate with this grace. If you're not dead in sin and you're just sick, you don't need a regeneration to to give you the gift of faith. You just need some prevenient grace or some enabling grace or some wooing grace to basically draw you to Christ, but then ultimately it's up to you. You can choose to resist that grace or you can choose to cooperate with that grace, but ultimately um, it's up to you. Now, now you still need grace to be saved. Now, Arminian would say you can't be saved without grace. You need the power of the Holy Spirit. You need the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You need grace. But their view of it is, is that it's a helping grace. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's not an overcoming grace that overcomes deadness. It's a helping grace that gives you the ability to have your eyes open to your sinful state, and then you make the choice to come to Christ. So in the Arminian view, you are born again because you believe. Your believing in Jesus is what causes you to become born again. Now, the Calvinistic view is totally opposite of that. Uh, Here's the Calvinistic view. In addition to the outward general call to salvation, which is made to everyone who hears the gospel, the Holy Spirit extends to the elect a special inward call that inevitably brings them to salvation. The external call, which is made to all without extinction, can be and often is rejected. However, the internal call, which is made only to the elect, cannot be rejected. It always results in conversion. By means of the special call, the Spirit irresistibly draws sinners to Christ. He's not limited in his work of applying salvation by man's will, nor is he dependent upon man's cooperation for success. The Spirit graciously causes the elect sinner to cooperate, to believe, to repent, to come freely and willingly to Christ. God's grace, therefore, is invincible and never fails to result in the salvation to those to whom it's extended. The big difference is, is that... You are born again first and then given the gift of faith to believe. The Arminian says you believe first out of your free will and then you're born again. The Calvinist says, no, you're spiritually dead. You have to be made born again first. And when God causes you to be alive, when God gives you the new birth, the first response that you have is you freely come to Christ because now you can come to Christ because your will has been liberated from its slavery. And God's God's sovereign grace will come to the elect and invariably everyone who was chosen for salvation will infallibly come to faith in Christ. There's no doubt about it. About it. And so those are the differences there in the Spirit's call. And again, the outward call of the gospel goes to, like, for example, if I'm standing on a Sunday morning preaching to my congregation, I extend the gospel call to everyone within earshot. Everyone in that room hears the gospel call, and that can be rejected. You, you can have people say, no, I don't want to believe that. But when the internal call of the Holy Spirit goes into a person that God has chosen before the foundation of the world, when God chooses to move in that person's heart, to open their eyes, to open their heart, we know that at that moment, God is working to bring them to spiritual life, to, to make them alive. And we have an example of this from the scriptures in Acts sixteen fourteen. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The scripture says the Lord opened her heart to respond. She didn't open her own heart. The Lord opened her heart, and thus she became a Christian as a result of God's working. Now, the final one may be probably the one that you're most familiar with. Uh, when you think about the difference between Arminianism and Calvinism, uh, the Arminian view, and this was the real stickler among the remonstrance and the, and, and the, and the, um, the Senate of Dort, was this whole idea in the Arminian view that you could lose your salvation. So let's listen to the Arminian view. 
Those who believe and are truly saved can lose their salvation by failing to keep up their faith. All Arminians have not agreed on this point. Some have held that believers are eternally secure in Christ, that once a sinner is regenerated, he can never be lost. Okay, according to Arminianism, salvation is accomplished through the combined efforts of God, who takes the initiative, initiative in man, who must respond. Man's response being the determining factor. God has provided salvation for everyone, but his provision becomes effective only for those who of their own free will choose to cooperate with him and accept his offer of grace. At the crucial point, man's will plays a decisive role. Thus, man, not God, determines who will be the recipients of the gift of salvation. And so the idea there is that you can lose your salvation because if it was your choice to get into the matter, you can choose by your choice to get out of the matter. And so um, the Arminian view would say, yes, a true believer, one who is truly saved, truly regenerated, truly born again, can lose his or her salvation, can fall away from a state of grace. Now, the Calvinistic view says this, says all who are chosen by God redeemed by Christ and given faith by the Spirit, are eternally saved. They are kept in faith by the power of Almighty God and thus persevere to the end. The Calvinists would say all true believers, those who have truly been saved, will fully and finally endure to the end because God will ensure that they make it to the end. They can't lose their salvation. Now, we need to be very clear here because I think both views address something that we observe. How many of you have seen someone who made a profession of faith? They, they said they were a Christian. They either went forward at a church or they got baptized or they went through confirmation or they, they said, hey, I'm a Christian. And they made a profession of faith publicly in some way to identify with Christ. And then later on, they denied that or they fell away or, or they're not walking with God and it looks like they're living like the devil and that they had no, no real profession of faith. So we observe that and the Arminian looks at that and says, that's a genuine believer who fell away. The Calvinist looks at that and says, no, that was a false convert who never was saved in the first place and through time proved the fact that they weren't truly saved. They may have had a profession of faith, but they had no possession of faith. You see the difference? The profession of faith means I could claim I'm a Christian, but they were never truly saved in the first place. And so you have the five points of Arminianism and the five points of Calvinism that have emerged out of the Protestant Reformation through the Synod of Dort, through the Remonstrance, and, and different groups throughout, the, throughout the, um, the past 500 years or so have, have, have had different nuances. And, and so today, um, you, you might need to figure out where you fit on the spectrum. And, and what I usually tell people is this is not something that you go to lightly to try to figure out. You need to spend some time through the Scriptures and to understand where you land on these issues. The most important thing for me is that you take the time and the energy and the care to come to your own conclusions based upon your own study of the Word. Don't take my word for it. Don't take a book's word for it. Use your brain and the power of the Holy Spirit and time and energy to go through and study these and come to your conclusions because sometimes it can be a painful journey. I, I came through a painful journey where... Um, I used to be more Arminian-leaning, and through um, my study of the Scriptures and, and going through seminary and, and looking at the original languages and just really kind of spending time in the Word, God 
convicted me, and, and I've come to the conclusion that the Calvinistic way, the Calvinistic doctrines are more in line with what I believe the Scripture teaches. But again, this is a doctrine. If you don't come to the conclusion and you're more Arminian or Wesleyan or Nazarene in, in, in differences, and some people say, you know, I'm not on one extreme or the other. I'm somewhere in the middle. Um, that's okay. The main point is that you know what you believe and why you believe it, and you're able to defend it biblically. Not just with an opinion. I, I believe it because of this, but you can go to the Scriptures and give solid proof for why you believe what you believe. So, the five solas of the Protestant Reformation, Scripture alone, Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, to God's glory alone. And then you have the five points of Calvinism and the five points of Arminianism that also came out of the Protestant Reformation. Both um, very interesting things to study, and we're a product of those today that really influence how we think about this whole issue of God's gospel and salvation and the whole message of what we're supposed to be bringing about as a church. So this concludes this session on the Protestant Reformation.